Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in on this Thursday. Great guest today, the one and only Todd Leopold from Leopold Brothers in Denver, Colorado. Todd, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Yes, I am excited to talk with you. Uh, we go back some years here in Denver. Anybody in the Denver scene for sure has worked with you guys, knows who you guys are. But I want to give people a little bit more background even before Leopold Brothers started in Colorado. You actually started in Michigan. So let's take us all the way back to the beginning journeys of starting a distillery with your brother. Talk about that a little bit. Sure. Uh, well, um, we, we started as a brewery. Um, so we put together a business plan right. way back in, in uh, goodness, 1994. And Scott and I went to Columbine High School and we were looking at the Colorado market. And at the time, I always get a laugh at this now in 2020, but at the time there were 14 breweries in, in Denver Metro. Wow. And we concluded that the market was saturated. And of course, I get the giggle now, but it was true. That's how many, you know, really could, could uh, you know, the, the, that, that was the marketplace back then. So um, Scott went to people context, 14 breweries. There's now well over 100 breweries in a Denver metro, 400 breweries in Colorado. So 14 felt saturated right. in the 90s. <laughs> Hey, yeah. listen, I, I, I don't claim to be the smarter of the two brothers. So <laughs> anyway, uh, so we so uh, my brother went to Northwestern for his undergraduate and he had been to the University of Michigan. It's a Big Ten school to go see the University of Michigan beat the crap out of Northwestern in football and uh, re really liked Ann Arbor a lot. There weren't any breweries at the time. So we thought that that would be a good market to go into. In the meantime, I went to a place called the Siebel Institute yeah. um, up in Chicago, graduated from there in uh, 1996. Um, and then I went and uh, to a, uh, did postgraduate work at a brewing school called Domans um, that, that's just outside of Munich, um, did apprentice work over in German breweries and then came back and uh, worked temp jobs for two years trying to get a bank to be dumb enough to give us money. Um, they finally did. And we opened up the, the brewery in Ann Arbor in 1999. Um, so we were the closest part of the big house. So a hundred and whatever the hell thousand people. 110,000 seat capacity. Yeah. yeah. So well, it wasn't intentional. We just found this beautiful building, um, 10,000 square foot building uh, that was built in 1910. Excuse me, or something somewhere around there. Beautiful building, vaulted roof, you know, the whole thing, high ceilings. And uh, I think it was eight, eight and a quarter square foot. <laughs> um, yeah. So we're like, well, okay. Um, you know, don't have to be a genius to say yes to that. So we yeah. opened up as a brew pub. Uh, you, we'd had live music there. You could fit 
three, 300, 350 people in there, uh, you know, for events like that. And then of course the football, um, we, we turned into a default sports bar. It wasn't intentional. Um, I mean, we weren't like that on other days. We were more of a grad school and locals hangout. Um, but, um, Scott had, my brother had to deal with a fussy younger brother, um, who want, just wanted to make German lagers, unfiltered lagers. So, you know, Bierstadt Lager House and their three-minute pour? Of course. I did that. I did that. You want to know how long that lasted? About Not two long. minutes. About three minutes. It lasted about, about three, three minutes. minutes. Yeah. yeah. And, and the bartenders are like, dude, what are you talking about? We can't. And, you know, they were right at the time. The place was too big to do that. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I changed the carbonation and, you know, made it so it was, uh, but anyways, it was unfiltered lagers. And in 1999, that was not exactly a popular choice. And so what, what happened was, and of course it, it was a tasting room. So it was set up like Great Divide or New Belgium or, you know, or places like that where the license only allows you to sell what you make. Right. Um, so uh, as a result, um, we, we'd have enormous groups of people that came in because the place was so big. We had big German style picnic tables. Cause I always liked my favorite thing about Europe is that people drink together. Yes. You, you can actually meet people and talk. Whereas America, you know, you go in with your friends, you don't talk to anybody else and you leave, which I've always thought was. Yeah. Weird. And even the community tables, there's always a gap between everyone. You don't want to sit right next to somebody. That's right. Well, so. what we decided to, you know, change that and people loved it. Um, we put in board games. We were trying to figure out a way to make it so it wasn't, you know, didn't attract the, the underage drinking crowd. We didn't want to have to deal with that. And well, so you're we in a college town. That's a big issue, I'm sure. Well, yeah. Um, what we did was we put in board games. Um, and board games made it so people felt more comfortable, you know, sitting together. It's easy to talk about, you know, hey, you're getting your ass kicked in Battleship or, or whatever it is. Uh, it was just a really easy, it, it was a conversation breaker and made it really easy for people to talk to each other. But in any event, when you get groups of 20, groups of 30, it was not uncommon to have 50 people walk in. Sure. Um, and uh, when, when you have that many people, especially in 1999, easily half of them didn't like beer. So what would happen is they'd cut, right, well, but they'd come in for a round and then they'd head uptown, which is obviously not exactly a recipe for business success. And the only way out of it was to get a distilling license. We couldn't pull a liquor permit. So I went to distilling school in Kentucky and using all the contacts I had from Germany, I worked in uh, Eau distilleries in Austria and Germany. So Eau wow. fermented cherries, fermented pears, where you're trying to capture the essence of a pear or, or a Montmorency cherry, you know, in spirit form. And it's served there as a digestif. And it's, yeah, it means uh, water of life. I mean, what a perfect You, you got name. it. But it's, very, but it's very, you know, popular to have a shot at the end of the meal. And it really right. helps in digestion. You, you know, as an American, you think, what are you, insane? Why would I, but in, in any event, um, so I learned, you know, I had all this experience with grain and with malting and all that kind of stuff from my brewing background. And then I went over to work on fruit and then we came back, um, uh, I came back and we pulled a winemaking license and a distilling license. Um, we made the vodka, we made the gin, <laughs> you know, we, we were basically the first distillery pub in the country. Yeah. So it, it, understand that, that at the time, you either made whiskey, you know, you were Jim Beam, or you yep. made vodka, or, you know, you were Tanqueray and you just made gin. Making everything um, 
was really unusual. The only, the only other distillery at the time that came anywhere close to that, St. George, um, yeah. out, out of Alameda. Those guys are wonderful, oh, yeah. by the way. Yeah, uh, they're absent, and your absent were very seminal moments in my career at Tag Restaurant. Uh, I remember taking around the uh, uh, the drip a lot yeah. of times. You take it around the tables. You take the serpentine loop around and then all of a sudden I'd send, spend 45 minutes when I worked some front of house helping out a tag, I'd spend 45 minutes just doing absent presentations for people. And it was always yours. If somebody wanted something a little bit more soft and feminine, I would say, and then St. George, if they wanted something a little bit more assertive. And that's so, a yeah. Way of putting it. Yes. Yeah, that's, a per that's a perfect way of putting it. And of course, you know, we, so it was legalized in 07. So the very last year that we were in business, we moved to Colorado. This is a perfect segue. We moved to Colorado in 08. Um, so we had a year of sales there. And all we had to do was buy the first round. That's because it. Nobody knew what the hell it was. And they're watching the, you know, the water fountain drip in and it starts green. It changes color. Um, Anathol, the, the compound that comes out of anise is a mild anesthetic. So if you have a couple of them, your face goes numb. Yeah. So you, you kind of understand where all the mythology came from. Um, and our absinthe, that we, our sales, uh, our sales have been doing this, this nice, slow, gentle increase, you know, for over, a, for over a decade. We keep thinking that, you know, that the sales are going to go down. Plateau um, at a point, but it keeps coming up, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's fun. The first round. That was so clear. That's always what we did. Communicating with the servers. I think of I think of David Gade, who now is deviation distilling, yep. who's been on the show where he talked about hand sanitizer, which I want to talk with you about as well. And he was really good, really good at finding that two top that were just amazing. Drank some really geeky Riesling or something, like let him take them on a journey and or do a moccasin and we would just cook for them and say them let's get them absinthe we bought them one glass it cost us three dollars and 12 cents and then we would spend 45 minutes and we'd sell 278 dollars worth of absinthe right. right like that but it was a meaningful interaction for everybody that two top they told everybody about it they went directly to the liquor store and bought a bottle of absinthe got onto eBay, found their own drip. Like those kind of stories I think are really personal and important. So you're de you're describing the, w what got us to where we are, you know, so some of the younger distillers will come along and say, what's your secret? And we're like, well, we're old. <laughs> and it, we, you sell one bottle at a time. There's no magic. We're, we're, we're not, uh, you know, we don't have the financial resources to sell 10,000 cases at a pop. We are one bottle at a time. There's no, there's no other way to do it um, w without having a few, you know, the, the adage that started with wine and drifted into spirits, you know, how do you make a million dollars in wine? Well, you start with 10 million, right? Yeah, that's right. So, so you know, bar, barring that, it's just, it's word of mouth. And in the spirits industry in particular, you don't want this. Mm -hmm. If you see this for your sales, that's coming. Yep. Um, so we would rather just have nice, slow, you know, sales increases. And, and you know, we're, we're hoping that, you know, I have a five-year-old daughter. We're hoping one of these days uh, she, she runs the place. Um, so slow and steady and, and you know, make you sure people know. The from Leopold Brothers to the Leopold family distilling legacy. Something like that. <laughs> a quick yeah. funny story. We actually, when she was, I think, two and a half, we got her a little hoodie 
And we asked her, you know, what does that say? And she said, I know what that says. It says Leopold sisters. Uh, yes. <laughs> so maybe oh, a little bit of so foreshadowing and we're going to need to change the name in 20, 30 years. So we'll, we'll see how that works out. You're going to have different portfolios. I think O to V is going to make its way into the sisters. <laughs> That's right. A big connection there. All right. I want to tell people, cause I really am chomping at the bit to tell people about more personal story connections to you. Tell people about silver tree. What is Silver Tree? Well, again, when we started out the bar and, you know, we, we, we were trying to, you know, market what it was we were doing, understand that it started as a call. So in other words, we have a bottle of gin, we have a bottle of, of vodka, and the only place we're selling it is at the pub. So we didn't want people to get the message that what we, I'd like a Leopold's and tonic is like, well, which one, the gin or the vodka? Then it sounds generic then it sounds like they're they're made using the same process and we're you know so we intentionally use different shaped bottles we intentionally use different names um we had no idea where we'd be in 20 years right so calling it silver tree um we, we were trying you can kind of see the trees in in the background that represents our family it's five trees ref reflected in a lake is what that is and it's uh, we have a sister and obviously our parents, so it's five trees. But th that's kind of where it came from. We we're trying to call it something other than Leopold. So we called the gin, uh, you know, Leopold's American small batch gin and then Silver Tree Vodka. And of course, you know, we were talking before we started. There's a ton of people who are massive fans of Silver Tree. I, I actually went to a liquor store for a tasting. And I always go to see what they have because usually I can sell out what they have in stock. So it's like, okay, I'm going to talk about this and we're going to unload the shelves, right? So I go and I'm, you know, facing the, the Silver Tree Vodka and the Spirits Buyer, and this is a big store. The Spirits Buyer said, oh, Silver Tree, I love that vodka. You like it too? And I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, so he had no idea that, that we made it. So now we call it, you know, Leopold Silver Tree Vodka. Yeah. Um, but, but that was just left over from when we were a pub and, and in our minds, we didn't want, you know, we didn't want to be known for one thing. Right. So if you think about, you know, Tanqueray, Tanqueray, believe it or not, had a vodka. They might still, I don't honestly don't even know. But when sure. you think Tanqueray, you think gin. So understand that liquor stores, is, is, as you know, they're not set up the way that beer aisles are. Right. New Belgium and Odell has all their stuff in one place. Right. It's not like that for booze. So we run into people all the time who love our gin or love our absinthe or love our bourbon and have no clue we make liqueurs and our liqueur yeah. fans don't yeah. know we make gin. Um, so it's one of those quirks. And it, sometimes people make the mistake of thinking that the spirits industry is the same as beer. And it's just it's an entirely different animal. Um, but that's, that's where Silver Tree came from. That, I love this because that's literally the experience that I had. And this is taking back down memory lane. So, you know, 2007, when I, Betsy and I moved to Colorado, my first job was as a chef and then executive chef for Kevin Taylor. And we were right downtown and our after work spot was Red Square and Ryder Square right there, Vodka Bar, right? We had the Baltica beers and we'd always have different vodkas and Silver Tree was our number one go-to Silver Tree with a pickle chaser. Loved it. Had no idea then years later doing events and different things at Tag and Row 14 and stuff with you, your brother, Leopold Brothers. It wasn't until a lot later that somebody asked me about that 
Red Square, I told them, yeah, we used to go there all the time and get way too hammered on Silver Tree Vodka. Like, oh, the Leopold's Vodka? It's like, no, 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 Silver Tree Vodka, not Leopold's. Like, I don't, they don't sound the same at all. They're like, no, that's Leopold's. It's like, shut up. So, and I had been in the industry for a long time. I had been buying booze, like, and I still didn't realize that. Hey, nobody ever said we were good at marketing. So, yeah. I don't know. I think you guys are pretty good at marketing. But marketing aside, you guys' brand is very thoughtful. It's family. We've talked a lot about family to this point. And so I want to talk about your family when it comes to your extended family within the business itself. Talk about what's happening with them, what's happening within your business, kind of more contemporary with COVID and all this crazy shit. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, my, my brother, he, he got his uh, uh, undergraduates, as I mentioned, at Northwestern in economics. So obviously he does the, the bean counting and everything that doesn't pertain to alcohol. Um, then he got his master's from Stanford in environmental engineering. Um, the, the idea behind starting up our business, and a lot of people don't know this, is we were trying to show people Way, way the hell back when we put our business plan together in 94, how to make as close to a pollution-free factory as possible. So we don't talk about it a, a whole lot, in, you know, up front or on our bottles because we learned in Ann Arbor that if you tell people that, if that's your lead-in, then, then it's like, oh, well, you know, we're going to buy your stuff because we feel sorry for you or something. Yeah. And it's heavy. Yeah, it's a mix. It's a mixed message, and what we want to do is we want to compete with everybody on quality, and we're doing the environmental side of things um, because it's the right thing to do. One and for two, it, it's more financially efficient. So we had an entire section in our business plan on what's now called sustainability. Back then, we called it zero waste. Nobody knew what the hell that uh, sustainability was. Your marketing, nobody had branded that yet? No, 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 no. That came a lot later. And we had to take it out of our business plan because bankers kept saying, what is, what is this? And it, they, they're picturing in their mind that we're a bunch of crazy hippies. And I'm looking at them going, my brother went to Stanford. It's not like we're, and we're trying to explain to them, you know, using less energy, using fewer materials, use, you know, using less energy, this is a smart business. This, you know, you set aside the environmental side, just look at what this means financially, that we're looking at every raw material input that comes into the building and what goes out. You pay for water going in, you pay for water going out, you pay for the materials coming in, you pay for the recycling and all that stuff. And if you're not using as much, it's a massive financial advantage. So at our place now, um, so now I guess we're you know, 30, 40,000 square feet I was told there'd be no math. Um, uh, with now with our new new um, expansion, uh, much larger for malting, uh, we have one household size trash can. That's it. And of course, a lot of it is uh, the nice. Again. You have one household trash can for what? For and give us scope because I've been outside of distilleries and breweries and seeing 50, 60, 80 trash cans. So oh yeah. Talk about so we have we have just one and what it is is we you know we're paying attention to what materials are coming in and out um, and simply not buying them so it, it, it's you know now people talk about you know the latest thing or at least this year you know straws and stuff like that you know we were working through all of these things 20 years ago how do how do you deal with not having coasters 
What, what can you do that can replace that? How do you make it so that you're not, you, you know, and some of it is health department stuff that you can't get around. And of course, these days we're finding out those, those rules are probably pretty important, right? Um, but anyway, um, so it's going through when you're designing a plant before you go in and looking at the materials that you're, you know, all of the things that you're designing and the, and we use wooden fermenters, for instance, right? So wooden fermenters, you can't clean them with chemicals, okay? So if you're, if you make a beer or, or you make a spirit or wine and you ferment it out in a stainless steel fermenter and you empty it out to go to packaging or filtering or whatever it is that you're doing, you have the same cleaning regime. You rinse it with hot water, you then you circulate hot caustic. Hot caustic gets out the proteinaceous materials, then you rinse it again, then you hit it with hot acid. Acid gets out the mineral compounds, then you rinse it again. Think about all that water. And then you're sanitizing it at the end. This process, depending on the plant, takes anywhere between three and as long as uh, seven hours, just depending on the, the, the huge tanks are a little bit longer. But think about all, all the chemical that you're using. Think about all the water that you're using. Think about all the labor that you're paying for. So the wooden fermenters that we have in back and we've calculated are free in relation to buying stainless after eight, eight and a quarter years. So... Yeah. The meter stops running. You're not using all of that water. You're not using all that labor. So when we empty out our fermenters, we do one last little rinse of water to get the, you know, what little bit is, is left. Um, and then we fill them again the, the, the same day. And so that this is a massive, you know, financial advantage that we have in our business. And this is all, you know, uh, having Scott and of course having me understanding the fermentation and distillation process. It's a, it's a pretty powerful team when you're working together to say, how do we eliminate this? You know, how do we make this as efficient as possible? But at the same time, it's led by quality, right? So using these wooden fermenters, what's important to me quality wise is it's allowing for wild yeast and bacteria to live in that for, in those fermenters that are gonna consume things that the yeast can't. Yep. And over time, it's gonna lead to, you know, what we have right now in our, a house note in our bourbon and our rye is orange marmalade. And this podcast is too short for me to go into detail, but so going after this quality, right? Chasing after the best possible whiskey I know how to make has all these cascading financial and environmental effects from that one choice. And if you're running through and thinking of, of these things before you design the plant, um, you can wind up with one trash can going out a week. It's amazing. And so here's, here's what I wanna to get to because I think it's important. Very thoughtful very fiscally responsible. The balancing act of that seems like magic because it doesn't happen very often. Too often you're on one side of the equation or the other and you struggle with the flip side of that equation. For you, it's been very much 20 years in the making, staying steadfast to that. What I love about it is it's giving you an opportunity in this moment. You've done a couple of things that, that I think are important. Again, your staff, is on staff. They're getting paid right now. Yep. And you did what a lot of distilleries did, which I love the pivot of getting into hand sanitizer. You were in a position to be able to do those things because of your efficiency as a business, because of your fiscal responsibility, and because of your thoughtfulness that you actually give a shit enough to make that a decision when it could be a much easier decision to cut and run on things and take care of the business. But for you, the people, are the business. So talk about that a little bit. The people, keeping it on staff, why that was important. And then well, let's talk about hand sanitizer a little bit. 
Yeah, I mean, it was the first thing that my brother did. You spending the first two weeks of, you know, when when we realized what was coming, you know, I figured it out about a you know week and a half, two weeks before the shutdown, what was coming, um, and or or at least an idea. I mean, obviously, I'm you know I'm not saying we predicted this or anything like that, but you can see what was on the train tracks and what was had headed our way. So the first thing we had to do was, you know are distributors ever going to order from us again? We don't know. Uh, you know, the, the restaurants and, and, and bars are closed, but we didn't know whether liquor stores were going to be open or not. We had no idea. So we have to look at it and say, all right, well, you know, how long can we last? Um, so the first thing we did, obviously Scott and I aren't getting paid. That's step one. We knew that <laughs> we knew that was the first thing to go. Um, and then you look at, you know, we, a lot of the businesses, you know, you know, t- talking to the chefs, you know that they look, they put their homes up, right, right, to try and figure out, you know, how do we make sure that we don't let go of the people who have been a part of our, our, our success? And so, you know, we figured out a way to make sure that they were taken care of. It took about two weeks. Um, we've been working with a local bank, First Bank, this entire time. Um, by the way, when we closed on this current building that I'm sitting in, that's now a little over five years old, when we went into the closing, I was looking around and, you know, I told my dad, I said, Dad, do you realize what this room is? This is where I got a small loan to go to Germany for brewing school from the same bank. We've been banking with them since the, the 80s, you know, when we, when we first uh, got to Colorado, the early 1980 or whatever year it was. Um, but anyways, they were great and, you know, trying to, okay, here's, here's what we can do. Here's where we have some flexibility. And so we got that taken care of. Once we got that taken care of, then because I'm a brewer, I, uh, I know a little bit, um, before other people, maybe that, um, it's obvious now, of course, but breweries obviously don't have an, have any place to put their draft beer. So yeah. we've been working with New Belgium for over a decade. They've been using our barrels uh, to finish their sour beers in, in them. A wonderful, wonderful relationship with them. Uh, and so I called them up and said, all right, what you got? We're, we, because we were getting phone calls from everybody. You know, City of Thornton, City of Boulder, Kaiser Permanente, some muckety-muck from Kaiser Permanente is calling us. And I'm like, oh, man, this, well, this must be serious. So we have a vodka column, and that's an important thing for people to understand. Not every distillery has a vodka column. And what it is, I won't bore you to tears, what it allows you to do is to put beer in. So in other words, New Belgium beer, um, and uh, distill it to, to, and clean it, clean it up so that it comes off of the still at over 95% alcohol. That is the base for hand sanitizer. Yeah, hydrogen peroxide and some glycerol. You don't need to know about that. Um, but we, we had to find all the materials, which wasn't easy because everybody's doing the same thing, right? Try, the supply chain is broken, right? Um, and obviously the regular companies that are doing this hand sanitizer didn't have it. So we're I think it took us about two weeks to chase all of the bits down to get what it is we need. The reason we went reached out to New Belgium is, and again, without going down a rabbit hole, the mash that we make here is a 5% alcohol mash. Okay. In my opinion, it makes better whiskey. It makes better vodka. I won't bore you as to why that's the case, but what New Belgium. Let's just call a spade a spade. You're right. It does. Well, I think so, but that's just my opinion. Everybody has a different opinion on these things. But the important thing is we couldn't put, uh, we couldn't raise the alcohol in, in, in our mash without cooking the solids onto the stills. So 
I call New Belgium. I know that they're going to have excess beer. And I know that they're going to have excess beer that's going to be well north of 5%. So that immediately doubles the amount that we're able to do because they're sending out 8 to 10% alcohol beer. Um, and because it's all liquid, it's easier to bring to a boil, yada, yada, yada. So anyways, we got it all together. Um, I, I think we're north of 50,000 gallons of New Belgium beer um, that, that we've distilled. And by the way, the first batch was La Follet. Wow. Um, and, and the guys were, were, were in the back looking at, I, I think it was, you know, about a thousand gallons of beer. And we're sitting here doing the math behind how much money that is um, that, that they donated. They donated that first batch. Yeah. Well, they donated all of it, but they donated La Follet because that's what they had. Wow. It, it, it's obviously sellable and they can, they can keep it in their tanks. But they knew we needed it immediately. And, and the other important nerdy technical part, it, it needed to be uncarbonated. You, you can't put carbonated beer in a still, you boil it and it foams, you know, it, you can't do it. So anyway, so we have this nice advantage that obviously I know all of these things because I brewed for 15 plus years. Um, so we're just taking advantage of it and, you know, trying to help, you know, trying to do something. You know, what can we do? Uh, obviously, uh, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> Um, but we're a distillery and we have a vodka column. And as I mentioned, you know, we're one of a handful of distilleries in Colorado that has a vodka column that has the, that even has the option to do that. So that kind of is like, okay, we kind of have to do this, um, really more than anything else, but it was something we, you know, obviously we wanted to do and we wanted to help. And the, the important part is, um, between, uh, New Belgium and, uh, Craig and I were, were working the, the still um, seven days a week. We finally got a day off uh, over the holiday weekend. Didn't wow. feel like much of a holiday weekend, but, um, but you know, every day because it, it's a long distillation run. It's, it's about 16 hours. So he came in the morning. I did the night shift um, to get the alcohol out. Then you have to mix it up. Um, R&L Carriers, a, a, a trucking company, was uh, helping ship the beer for free. Yeah, we had a company called uh, Motherlode Provisions that got the dollar, or excuse me, the gallon jugs, which we couldn't find anywhere. Consume and Create, they've done our beautiful labels. Don't mind showing you this real quick here. So the same company that did our beautiful uh, redesign with our labels, they had to figure out how to make it FDA compliant. I had to learn how to make it. People just assume that I know how to make hand yeah, sanitizer. Right. I know, I'm like, why would you think I know how to do that? Right. Uh, so, but anyway, so we got it all together and, and we've gotten several thousand gallons out uh, of it now. It, it's gone to liquor stores, you know, the people that are working in stores, obviously hospitals, fi you know, uh, fire departments, city of Thornton, city of Boulder. And, and actually, the, the, apparently the Air National Guard um, helicoptered some of it to rural parts of Colorado together with the PPE that they needed. So it really went everywhere. Um, and it was just our, it was our little bit. It really isn't, you know, it's our little bit. The, the people that are actually, you know, coming into contact um, with the public, you know, you want to do what you can to help. And, and when you get the thank you notes in, you'd understand, you know, how worried people are and, and how brave they are. Um, just to simply go in and clock in at work, you know, at a grocery store, a liquor store, or, or you know, as a plumber repairman, or you know, whatever it is that 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 they're doing, and just seemed like a simple thing to do. And we're grateful that New Belgium really stepped up, and all our other partners, because we wouldn't have been able to do it without them. So it was really, it, it was a, it was 
an affirming thing that that so many people came together to make to make this happen to help the community and it was you know i think that it not only did it help uh, uh on the medical side of things you know it it, it helped on the spiritual side you, you feel a little bit better that people are coming together to help figure out how the hell to get through this nonsense yeah L last thoughts on that i maybe want to stay on that thread because i i just know knowing yourself your brother knowing Taryn, the team that you have, like, I, I just know that you guys making hand sanitizer had to have so much meaning for you because you're a thoughtful company. You make an amazing product. You cultivate community, all those things. And at the same time, you create a spirit. Now you're creating something that is potentially helping save lives in a very meaningful way. So I know how important that is to all of you. So some last thoughts on just where you're at, seeing yourself, as an individual, as a company, as a brand, kind of coming out of this now that you've created yet another layer of depth to your story. Well, I, you know, I, I do think it, it, you know, meant a lot, and uh, you know, to everybody here, um, what we've been doing. That you know, the, as, as soon as we saw we could afford, um, you know, to to for you know, first decision was okay. Well, what can we afford? And then from there, it's like, well, you know, you know, talking to, you know, our staff you're, you're outside of the production crew, um, the, the, their job is to not get this. They kind of, you know, it's it, it, they kind of, you know, you know, what can I do? You know, we have such a wonderful team. And, you know, they kept saying, I, I keep feeling like we want to do more, you know, and, and it's like your job is to not get this. We'll come up with stuff. And, of course, part of the problem, you know, with this communication if you remember in the first month was a train wreck. Yeah, bad. So we're struggling to try and get all of these things done. And, you know, so sometimes they would feel, you know, we were probably failing on the communication front with our staff, but there just weren't enough hours in the day to, you know, take care of the physical stuff, take care of the, the, the hand sanitizer. We had to keep bottling and to top it off, we were doing all of the social distancing, which means we've been running with a reduced staff. So we're, we've been taking turns and, and, you know, the kind of running joke we've been, excuse me, having here is that we feel like we're in a sitcom with a divorced married couple that's forced to live together yes. because, you know, I, I'm, I've been in this room for the, you know, for the most part, I would be in this room and would not set foot on the production floor until everybody was gone, until the, the, the two people that we had working in the back in completely different areas were gone. Um, because, you know, we're just trying to take every step. We can't get this. Yeah. I mean, obviously nobody can, who the hell wants to get this, but from a, you know, you got the, 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 you know, the medical side of things of not wanting to get this. And then you got the financial side of not wanting to get this because if one of us gets a, now what, you know, you have to shut down the plant. You have, you know, so anyways, the one, you know, the thing that we have that others, uh, others don't is a pretty much limitless supply of alcohol. So this is about as sanitary yes. um, uh, of a facility as you can possibly imagine. And we literally have pails of 80% um, ABV alcohol sitting out, um, you know, sanitizing surfaces and doorknobs and, and that kind of thing. But um, we're, we're very proud to, to, to have made it through and it is very much a, a, a fam, a small family business. And, and, um, you know, we're, we're very lucky to be in the position, you know, part of it is just dumb luck. Part of it is that we've been at this for 20 years. Uh, um, but it, it's, 
we're, we're proud to have helped, but it's, you know, it pales in comparison in my mind to the, to the people who are, are making food deliveries, right? Or working a register or, you know, the, those are the people that, you know, you got to tip your hat. And if, you know, giving them a little bit of added comfort with a hand sanitizer helps great. Um, you know, but, but, you know, the other part that the, the small bit of funny part to it, if there is a small funny part to all this, um, is that we've been laughing about how easy it is to distill when you don't care what the hell it tastes like. And the only <laughs> thing that's important is that it comes off of the still at over 95% alcohol right. and the flavor components don't matter. And as we keep telling the guys, don't get used to this. So yeah, for sure. Oh, I absolutely love that. There's, there's moments in levity and all of this. And I think that's really great. And the position that you're taking is important. And to your point, you have sanitize, hand sanitizer, which is supporting a massive need. The thinking about their job is to not get it love. And then also you have alcohol, which we all need just a little bit of right now <laughs> to decompress in those moments. So I appreciate all the boxes that you're checking thoughtfully in this time. And I know that it's going to continue for you. So Todd, I, I appreciate you taking some time because I know you got to get back to distilling yeah. and bottling, all of it. So thank you. Of course. It's, it's my pleasure. <laughs> all right. Great day. Cheers. Right. Cheers. Love that guy. Great energy, thoughtful, the family. It's a family business now. Watch out. Leopold sisters coming at you. So great. The work that they're doing so important and, you know, humbled by the opportunity. I think talking about love that he got to acknowledge so many different people that are part of that supply chain. Sophie, make sure we tag everybody up that he mentioned, RNL Carriers, New Belgium, everybody involved. It takes a village, absolutely. Very, very important stuff. And just, I'm a fan, for sure, a fan. And the fact that they're doing good in this moment means even more than anything that goes into a bottle. Believe that. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.